you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. All right, well, let's get our Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're continuing in our series called uh, This Changes Everything. And uh, the, the logo, I love the logo for this, uh, for this series. Uh, right at the bottom there is the, that's what the this is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That if everything that we've just been reflecting on during this service, if Jesus died for us and if he rose again and if we've been given the gift of eternal life, this, this changes everything. We don't, we don't look at anything in this world the same way because we know that we are now living for another world. We know that there is something far greater and nowhere is that more true than in the realm of Marriage. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward for people who don't have copies of God's Word. Let's hear it for our ushers. This has been like a track meet for them today. And uh, we've got the best, the best, just so many people serving so faithfully all over the place. And these guys have just been coming up and down the aisles for many reasons. So if you, if you don't have a Bible, you better put your hand up. Make it, make it worth their trip, okay? And uh, then they can go have a nap this afternoon. Who knew uh, serving in church would be so exhausting? So this changes my marriage. And nothing, nothing in life is more profoundly altered than marriage. One of the misconceptions is that the authors of the New Testament just looked at marriage in the Roman world, in the culture of that time, and just said, you know what, status quo is fine. Let's just do what the culture is doing. That could not be further from the truth. The, the New Testament message on marriage was completely countercultural then, as countercultural as it is today. And we're going to see that in Ephesians chapter 5. But we need to acknowledge that as we're getting going here, the, the topic of marriage is a very, very sensitive one. Last week we talked about singleness. It's sensitive because there are lots of people who are single and long to be married. And there are some people here today who are in marriages that are thriving, but who are always looking for ways to grow and to improve. There's, we've never arrived in that sense. There are others of us who are struggling in our marriages, who are having such a difficult time. Some of us are here today and our spouse is not with us because there is just so much division in the marriage. Others, you might be sitting beside one another in the same chair, but you are not on the same page and your hearts are not one with one another. It's a sensitive topic for many of us. Some of us are widows, some of us are divorced, some of us are estranged from our spouses. And so we need God to give us so much grace and so much clarity as his word is going to be open. So let's pray that God would do that now. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you. We pray that you would lead us by your spirit right now, God. God, it's your spirit that dwells inside every believer. It's your spirit that inspired Paul to write these words. It's your spirit that has been moving in our midst during this service. And so now I pray. God, that by your spirit you would breathe on your word and exalt your son. And God, that me, your servant, would fade into the background and that your voice would be heard with clarity and with power. 
So God, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. It begins by saying, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now some of you are thinking, oh poor Ted, he's, he, 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 he's reading the wrong passage. Um, wh- why are we talking about being filled with the Spirit and all of this is supposed to be a message on marriage. Well, the content on marriage begins in verse 22, but you can't just jump to Ephesians 5:22. You have to begin in Ephesians 5:18. Because we're going to see as we study this passage of scripture that there are four things, there are four kind of indicators that show that your marriage is changing or has been changed by the grace of God. Four ways that you can tell that I'm not looking at marriage the way the rest of the world looks at marriage. I'm looking at marriage through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing that we need to understand if our marriages are going to be transformed. Our marriages change when we are filled with the Spirit. Our marriages change when we are filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul begins with this negative illustration of drunkenness. And if you happen to be around someone who is intoxicated, you will notice that they say things they normally wouldn't say. And they find themselves doing things they normally wouldn't do. And Paul uses that as a negative metaphor. He says, don't, don't, don't get drunk with wine, because when people get drunk with wine, that's debauchery. The things that they say are things they probably shouldn't say. And the things that they do are probably things they shouldn't do, things that they will regret. But Paul then turns around and says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, we're not talking about getting drunk in the Spirit or anything like that. But when you're filled with the Spirit, you don't say things you would normally say under normal circumstances. You don't do things you would normally do under normal circumstances because you're no longer normal. You've been transformed. You've been given a new heart. You've been, you now have Christ's Spirit living inside of you and that changes everything. In the same way that alcohol flowing through someone's bloodstream changes them temporarily And for the worse, the Spirit of God flowing through a person changes them permanently and beneficially. And listen, as we go through this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, there are going to be some things that that we're going to read, we're going to hear God say, that are going to be hard. Things that we are called upon to do as wives, called upon to do as husbands that are not easy things to do. And if you're hearing this and you're not filled with the Spirit, if you're hearing this and you're not reflecting on the fact that Jesus died from you and rose again, and that that changes everything, then they will not just be hard things, they will be impossible things. But if you follow the grammar in the Greek language in Ephesians chapter 5, Everything that is going to be said about marriage hinges on this command to be filled with the Spirit. 
Wives are commanded to do what wives are commanded to do because they need to be filled with the Spirit. Husbands are commanded to do what husbands are supposed to do because they are filled with the Spirit. And if you're here today and you are married to a believer, God bless you. Because you are at such a huge advantage because both of you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And the Spirit of God will not lead you apart. The Spirit of God will lead you together. Ephesians 4 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But listen, if you, even if you're here today and you're married to an unbeliever and you find yourself in that situation, you need to understand that, listen, the hard things that you are, that you are called to do as a wife or as a husband, they still apply to you. And they are still possible for you because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That changes everything. Verse 19, we talked about how when, you're, when someone is intoxicated, they say things they wouldn't normally say. Verse 19, here's some things that we say. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You've been given that new heart and we talked about this earlier on in this series, how Jesus promises a new heart. He gave a, 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 an examination of the heart in Mark chapter 7. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. What destroys a marriage? Sexual immorality destroys a marriage. Adultery destroys a marriage. What destroys a marriage? Financial struggle as a result of coveting. That's what destroys a marriage. What destroys a marriage? The inability to communicate because you're so filled with evil thoughts about one another. That's what destroys a marriage. And if your heart is not changed, your marriage is vulnerable to be destroyed. But Jesus invites us to have our hearts transformed. In John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you didn't have the spirit inside of you, if your life hasn't been transformed by the gospel, then hurtful words rooted in evil thoughts will flow out of your heart and harm your spouse. Coveting will cause you to make financial decisions apart from your spouse and cause difficulty and strife. It will cause you to act on lust coming out of your heart. But none of those things are in the heart of a believer. The believer has a river of living water flowing through them. And we need to understand that, that what Paul is about to say, the hard things that he's going to do is we don't give in to our flesh. We don't give in to the sin that dwells in us. Sin might be living in us, but we do not live in sin. And there's a huge difference between those two. And so we need to understand that when we come to marriage, we need to understand that I have a new heart and I can, by the grace of God, filled with the Spirit of God, fulfill what God is about to call me to do. Verse 20 says, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice how verse 20 says, giving thanks. Last night, Lindsay and I were at a party uh, for my parents. They just celebrated uh, their 50th wedding anniversary, and uh, it was amazing. Yeah, that's worth clapping for, for sure. And it was, it was really a... Um, it wasn't just a celebration of their faithfulness to one another. It was a celebration of God's faithfulness to them. And uh, they've had an amazing marriage. I came from such a great family. But it, has no, it was not easy. There were some 
difficult, deep, dark valleys that, that they had to journey through together by the grace of God. God was so faithful to them. And my, my dad uh, prepared a, a little speech. He said he wrote um, uh, my, my mom a letter on their anniversary, and then he just shared some parts of it. In a little, and he, he just began and he ended with, we have so much to be thankful for. And he was just, and it, the, my, my father is filled with the Spirit. He has a new heart that's been transformed by the gospel, and he is a thankful man. And if you are here today and you are filled with the Spirit, you will be a thankful person. Stop, stop thinking about what's wrong and stop thinking about the problem with the other. Start thinking about what you're thankful for. And then verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So it all begins with being filled by the Spirit. And when you are filled by the Spirit, you have you have the power and the strength to do this next thing. Our marriages change when we are fulfilling our roles. When we are fulfilling our roles. What's written here is not popular in our culture today. It's not popular in our broader culture. It's not even popular within our Christian culture. This idea that husbands and wives have different roles to play within a marriage, but here it is in God's word. It says that wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and that the husband is to be the head of the wife. Now, uh, let's talk, let, let's just sort of talk about interpretation here. Some people, they latch on to verse 21. Well, we're supposed to submit to one another. And they, they also make note of the fact that the the word submit is not actually in verse 22. It says, wives to your husbands. It doesn't actually say, wives submit to your husbands. In this particular case, it says it in other places. And so some people try to make a big deal out of that. Oh, it's mutual submission. Sometimes the husband submits to the wife. Sometimes the wife submits to the husband. But listen, every time the word submit is used in the New Testament, it's referring to a person who is in authority and a person who is under their authority, and the voluntary decision made by the person under authority to yield to that authority. Right here in the book of Ephesians, he's, he's going to go through three different categories of people. Wives and husbands, children and their parents, slaves and their masters. And all of those are authority-related uh, relationships. And so we need to understand that we, we can't make submit mean something. When it says submit to one another, it's not saying that everyone just submits all the time. It's saying submit to one another where it's appropriate, where there are, where there are relationships involving authority. Other people would sort of point out that, well, you know, Paul, he's just a victim of his culture. And uh, he couldn't help himself. He just thought, you know... Wives in our culture submit, and so we, we, just need to, we just need to go along with the status quo. That, that, that's not true. You see, the problem isn't that Paul was too influenced by his culture when he wrote. The problem is that we're too influenced by our culture when we read. And uh, the, the Bible makes it clear time and time again that there is equality between a man and a woman. 
but there is a huge difference between equality and sameness. Now, the New Testament and the Christian faith is not opposed on every level to the modern feminist movement. If a, if a woman is working over here at this desk for this many hours, she should get paid the same wage as the man who's working over here at this desk. That's equality. You're doing the same amount of work you should get the same wage. That's what the feminist move, movement fought for. All, all kind, the, the right to vote. That, that we're very, very happy that women have the right to vote. All of these sorts of things. But where I would humbly say that the biblical worldview has to stop where the modern feminist movement continues to move forward is that is when the movement moves beyond a discussion about equality and starts to talk about sameness. Men and women are not the same. And there is a huge distinction between those. And there is a, a different role that is called upon for the wife to play and the man. The man is called the head. The wife is called to submit. I know, I know, even in, our, even in church culture today, to submit, it's, it's like I said, the S word. You know, you, you can't talk about that in church. It's too offensive. It's too controversial. It's actually powerful, beautiful, and will transform your marriage. If you allow a spirit-filled believer to truly embrace, if you as a spirit-filled believer truly embrace this, it will be so beneficial to you and your spouse. Here's what I mean when I'm talking about submission. Submission means that a wife, understanding her identity in Christ and her equality with her husband, voluntarily decides to honor her husband, affirm his God-ordained authority, and yield to his leadership. So there's three things at the end of the definition. This is what a, a wife is supposed to do, to uh, honor, to, to uh, affirm, and to yield, but before any of that, it begins not just what the wife does, but what does the wife know? She has to understand her identity in Christ. She is not defined by a role that she plays in her marriage. That's not who she is. Who she is is she is a daughter of the king of the universe. That she is a, 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 used to be a slave to sin who has been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. She has been justified. She has been set apart. She has all of these things. That is her identity. She needs to understand that. And then secondly, as we talked about, she needs to understand her equality in her relationship to her husband. She is equal. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says that, that we are all one. Male, female, all, we are all one. The first things out of Adam's mouth when he saw Eve, the first words he spoke, this is, this is the, the first utterance by a human being. Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first thing the first groom ever said to the first bride was, Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. We are equal. We're not the same. You are called woman, I am called man, but we are equal. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Also notice that Paul doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in our culture. That's not what he says. 
He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The the focus of what Paul is aiming at is not culture but Christ. Culture changes, Christ never does. So we need to understand that we have these different roles. The wise role is to submit. The husband's role is to be the head or to be the leader. Now, this doesn't mean that marriage is a dictatorship. Marriage is not a dictatorship. Marriage is a democracy. The trouble is there's only two votes. And so a lot of the times you end up with a tie. And hopefully you're not having ties all the time. And hopefully that the ties that really stress you out are ties that have to do with principles and not preferences. The husband's not supposed to assert his authority or his headship because he prefers one thing over the other and the wife is supposed to, oh, I guess I should submit. That's not it at all. But on principle issues, that is where the husband is called upon to lead. That when there's a tie in the voting, that is when someone needs to make a decision and God has called upon the husband to do that. Now all kinds of crazy things have been used to try to explain why, why did the Bible say, well, you know, maybe, maybe men are smarter than women. Not true. Maybe men are more spiritually sensitive than women. Not true. It's in the Bible because it's in the Bible. We're supposed to submit as to the Lord. There's no biological or psychological or even spiritual explanation. This is how God designed it to be. And we're, we're supposed to submit and, and have the role of authority, and it's all under being filled with the Spirit. It's all under the example that Christ sets for us. Here's the, here's the third point. Our marriages are changed when we are following Christ's example. We are following Christ's example. You see, when you get your eyes off of, off of yourself, or you get your eyes off of your spouse saying... I don't want to submit to him or a husband being like, I don't think I can lead her. When you get your eyes off of yourself and, on, and off of your spouse and get your eyes onto Christ, that's, that's where all the difference is made. So for the wife who's looking at herself or looking at her husband, she needs to look at Christ because Christ is the ultimate example of submission. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 11. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, make note of this, and the head of Christ is God. Jesus relates to God the Father in a submissive relationship. That his Father is head over him, that he has authority over him. But Jesus, time and time again, made himself out to be equal with God. He said things like, like this in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. In, in John chapter 5, people were picking up stones trying to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. But look at what Jesus said. I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus lived in submission. In, in the Gospel of Luke, it says he lived in submission to his parents. And all through his earthly life, he lived in submission to his heavenly father. He was equal, and yet he submitted. What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate act of submission. That 
spirit, the spirit of Christ dwells inside of each and every married woman in this room. He has set you the example and he has given you his spirit that even when it's difficult, and listen, you're not called upon to submit because of the worthiness of your husband. You're called upon to submit because of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. The example that he has set for you and the empowerment that is flowing through you because you are filled with the spirit. Husbands, you also have an example. So you've been put in this position of headship and authority. It's not that you deserve it. It's not that you're better. It's just how God has planned it, how God has designed it in his infinite wisdom. Here's how a husband is supposed to think about authority. Jesus, seeing his disciples arguing about authority in Mark chapter 10, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, master over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our model. That's the model for the husband and what leadership looks like. It's not, it's not so that you always get your way. It's that you always serve. And you have been put in that position in order to serve your wife, not to look into your own interests, but into the interests of others. So he's the example of submission. He's the example of leadership and authority. He's also the example of love. Get our heads back in Ephesians 5. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's our example of love. Husbands, you need to understand this, that you are never commanded anywhere in the Bible to make your wife submit to you. It is a voluntary act. It is something that she, rooted in her identity and understanding her equality with you, something that she decides to do. You are never commanded to make her submit, but you are commanded to love her and Husbands, you need to understand that you, your wife has been called to do something very difficult. And you can either make it more difficult or you can actually make it easy for her. You can make her submission a no-brainer. That if you love her the way that Christ loved the church. It says that he loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Just like the wife's submission is voluntary, your love is to be voluntary. Christ gave himself up for the church and we are to give ourselves. We are to give ourselves sacrificially. The way that a marriage should work is that a wife should look at all of this sacrifice that the husband is making and she's affirmed and understands clearly he has my best interests in mind because look at the way that he's living and we may disagree on this principle right now, but I know based on his track record that he is holding that position because he cares about us, not just himself. And we are called upon to love the way that Christ loved the church. That is a high calling for all of us. Again, we are being commanded to do hard things, but we have the spirit living inside of us and our hearts have been transformed. Then verse 26 says that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, uh, people kind of um, take this passage sort of in two different ways. One kind of way of looking at this is that this is a further job description of what a husband should do. And so he's supposed to wash her with the word, so do Bible studies, and he's supposed to sanctify her and set her apart and present her before the Lord. And that's one way of kind of looking at it. And I by no means want to discourage anyone from doing a Bible study with your wife or trying to help her grow in her relationship. That All of that's important. That's part of, of marriage, part of the beauty of it. But I think what's happening here is Paul just like, oh yeah, Jesus, that's right. Let me tell you what Jesus did. He, he sanctified and he, he washed the bride of Christ with, with the word and one day he's going to present us all. I think he's really just describing Jesus. In the same way, back in verse 23, it says that, that Christ, the husband, is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. Then it says, and, and the church is savior. The, the husband is, you might have a great husband, but he's not your savior. And you might have a great husband, but I don't think he can, he, he himself can wash you with the word. Only the gospel can do that. And he can't present you before, before God the Father. Only Jesus can do that. He says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. They should love their wives as their own bodies. Before we talk about that, I, I just want to make something abundantly clear. Continuing on with this theme of sacrifice and sacrificial love. Some of us wrongly understand that roles in marriage somehow elevates the man and demotes the woman. The New Testament teaching on roles in marriage does not put man on a pedestal. It puts him on a cross. And that is the role of the husband, to love in such a sacrificial way. And I know every man who's married or desires to be married thinks about that ultimate sacrifice, that choosing between the, the life of your wife and your own life. And I know every married man here would want to die for their wife if they were given the opportunity to. And we, we see so many examples of that throughout history, just noble godly men laying down their lives for the sake of their family. But men, if you're not willing to do small things for your wife now, what confidence do you have that you would do a big thing for your wife in the future? It starts small. The small decisions, the small sacrifices, the small expressions of love and care, protection and provision. And this is why, in verse 28, it says, A husband loves their wife as their own body. And then he goes on to say, He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, when you hurt your wife, you hurt yourself. It's counterproductive. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You, are, you have been made one flesh. When you insult her, you insult yourself. When you neglect her, you neglect yourself. And so understand that it is for your benefit that you would lovingly sacrifice for your spouse. 
Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Paul here makes a transition from the the theological to the biological, the the cross to just everyday life in your own body. He moves from an emphasis on sacrifice to to an emphasis on sensitivity. That our goal, husbands, is to love our wives as our own bodies, to truly live as though we were one flesh. We're supposed to uh, do two things that get fleshed out in verse 29. It says we are to nourish and cherish. Our job is to nourish our wives. Our job is to uh, provide for them and protect them and to put them in an environment where they are thriving. Is your wife wilting away because she's so dried up for lack of a rest or lack of an expression of heartfelt affection? Or is she being nourished? Is she thriving? Is she healthy because you have a healthy marriage and you as a husband are taking responsibility for that? And then I love this. We are to cherish We're to cherish. Here's two verses that should be on the tip of every married man's tongue. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. If you are married, you have been given a gift. Do not take that for granted. Do not take that lightly. Another human being has has made a vow to be loyal to you, to love you, and they're not perfect. But that is a gift that God has given to you. Don't ever lose sight of that. And then an excellent wife, who can find? Some of the single men are like, amen. Keep looking, bro. They're here. Talk to me after. She is far more precious than jewels. Where do you keep jewels? In your shed? Lying in your driveway? No. The, the, the jewels are, it's, it's in the place of honor. And if, if you happen to uh, possess a jewel, do you just hide it or do you, do you display it? Do you allow other people to, to marvel at the beauty and, the, and, and all of that? That is what we are called upon to do as husbands. I know I, I know I end up saying this all the time, but men, your goal needs to be that your wife feels like the most important person in the room at all times. Whether it's, whether kids are there, whether she comes to visit you at work, whether you're with your friends or your buddies, whether you're with your mother, at all times prime minister pro hockey player it doesn't matter have you met my wife this is my wife does she need anything how can I make sure that she feels cherished and valued right here right now your body's with you every time you go into a room you better feel like your wife is present with you every time you go into a room Every time you go into a room, a closed room, with a computer, or access to media, you better be thinking like your wife is there with you, like your own body. 
She's the most important person in the room. Every room, even when she's not there. That she would feel cherished. That she would feel like you love her and desire her more than anything else in this world. She's a gift from God. Treat her so special. Speak so kindly. Your goal is that your wife's needs and feelings would be as instinctual to you as your own body. As, as feeling hungry as the end of the service comes to the, comes and you want to have lunch. As when your back feels stiff so you stand up and take it. You, you instinct, you don't even think. It's just natural. It's happening in your body. I'm going to address this in the same way it's happening with my wife. One of the things Lindsay used to say to me all the time, and I think she's saying it less, I hope I'm doing a good job here, is she used to say to me all the time, you know, I'd make a mistake, I'd be insensitive, I'd have to repent, I'd have to confess. And she would say, you know what, Ted, I just, I just wish I wouldn't have to tell you sometimes. And, and I, I realized that, that was like a longing in Lindsay's heart. I think it's a longing in a lot of, a lot of wives' hearts. Is yeah, she can, she can correct you, and yeah, she can sort of let you know how she's feeling in a certain situation, but the goal is that she wouldn't even have to tell you. Now, wives, that's the goal, okay? You still need to tell him. And there are probably some things that are bugging you right now. He has no clue about. You need to tell him. Because that is the ultimate goal, that he would love you like his own body. And again, Paul just can't stop talking about Jesus. No one ever hated his own flesh, I'm in verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul's just so, so emphatic that Jesus brings all of the meaning to marriage. Jesus helps us understand our marriages, and our marriages help us understand Jesus. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's the fourth and final point. Are you focused on God's purpose? Are you focused on God's purpose? And really, the first point and the fourth point are absolutely essential. None of this can happen unless you're filled by the Spirit. And if you try to implement these things and and they don't seem to be working, you will become immediately discouraged. And that is why it's so crucial that we need to, in our marriages, focus on God's purpose. He says this, in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ. He's, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, the first marriage, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That hold fast, that's the language of covenant Tim Keller describes a covenant as a beautiful intermingling of love and law. It's a, it's a relationship that is made permanent by a legal vow or commitment. That's what happens in marriage. You, you make a vow to one another. And it's, it's, it's a legal document that is, that is an illegal declaration that is binding. But it's not just a legal dog. It's not just like a contract. 
You are committing to hold fast in relationship to become one flesh. If it was only about relationship, when, when your feelings changed, then you would change. If it was only about a legal contract, then we would just kind of begrudgingly go along with, with whatever we decided or committed to. Or if someone breaks their end of the contract, then we would feel obligated to break our end. But it's both of those things. Love and law. The personal and the formal. A husband is supposed to hold fast to his wife. And then he says that this mystery is profound and that it's referring to Christ and the church. Now mystery in the book of Ephesians, the word occurs seven times. This is time number six. And every time Paul's talking about mystery, he's not talking about it's a mystery. I don't, I don't understand it. I wonder what it's about. No, when he's saying it's a mystery... What Paul is doing is he's looking at what Jesus did and how because of what Jesus did, that makes everything else not more confusing. When he says a mystery, this mystery doesn't make everything more confusing. It makes everything make sense. And Paul sees that before, before Adam, before Eve, before marriage, before the first wedding, God knew that he was going to rescue and redeem his creatures. And he wanted them to understand that he was going to do it in a way that was permanent. That he was going to do it in a way that was pure. That he was going to do it in a way that was legally binding. But he was also going to do it in a way that was a passionate love. And that marriage and all of the ups and downs of marriage with adultery and polygamy and divorce and all of the... All of the beauty of marriage all throughout the Old Testament. All of that was a mystery. What is going on here? All of that now makes sense because we see who Jesus is and what he's done. And this changes everything. Now we know that the point of marriage is to be a model of how God loves us. That we are to love our spouses in a way that's so passionate and so emotional and so romantic and beautiful, but that is also so rock solid in commitment. We live in a world that's committed to romance. We are called upon to think that commitment is romantic. We are so committed to passion in our culture, we need to understand that our job is to be passionate about commitment. Because true passion leads to commitment. God's passion, his love for us, caused him to make a covenant with us. And we, when we think about marriage, we need to understand the importance of the covenant. The no turning back, always and forever, never giving up permanent love. Because that's the kind of love that God Loves us with. Loving your spouse even when they're unlovable. I love this quote from John Henderson. He says, at the moments when love is most difficult, love is most needed. You need to understand the role that you can play in your spouse's life. I mean, I know the role that Lindsay's played in my life. 
the times where I needed to be loved by Lindsay more than anything were the times in which I had made it more difficult than ever for her to love me. And this is why the gospel changes everything. Because even if you're living with someone who is opposed to you, even if you're living with someone who seems like they are trying to destroy the relationship, you need to understand that God loved you even when you were destroying your relationship with him. And we think, oh, I just need to teach them a lesson. I'm going to give them a taste of their own medicine. And when I turn that cold shoulder, and when I really let them have it, then they'll become so broken over their sin, and they'll say that they're sorry, and then things will finally be made right. That is not how marriage works, because that is not how the gospel works. We were off in our sin, and God did not turn his shoulder to us and teach us a lesson. He came to us in love. And it's love that broke the hard heart. And if you are in a relationship with a hard-hearted person right now, it is not the cold shoulder that will break their heart. It is you reaching out to them in love. Because that is the gospel and that changes everything. Because you know, in light of the gospel, I have been forgiven so I can forgive. I have been loved so I can love. God has reconciled himself to me so I can reconcile myself to this person. And there are times in which you are the one who needs your heart broken because your heart is hard. And there are also times in which you need to reach out in love towards your spouse when their heart is hard. This changes everything. The, the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2. The Bible ends with a wedding. It's really just a story of a marriage and how God is so faithful and so passionate in his love for us, his covenant love. He's so committed to us. And when we understand that, that changes our marriage forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you know what's best for us. We thank you that, that we never marry the wrong person. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that even in our singleness, you are sovereign. And we thank you that even when we feel unloved and rejected, that we can love because you loved us even when we rejected you. And so God, I pray that you would do a work of healing in so many marriages. I pray that you would do a work of healing in so many hearts, Lord. I pray that the life-transforming reality of the gospel, of the, the marriage, God, that you have committed to with us, God, I pray that that would strengthen our commitment to our spouses. And God, I, I pray that we would be a church, as Hebrews 13 says, that marriage would be held in honor in our church. Whether we're married or whether we're not, Lord. And so God, I, I pray that it would be held in honor because we know that it points to something greater. And so God, we pray that we'd fix our eyes on that. 
God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.